is the story Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified, of just marked for salvation. Good morning, Lake City. How are you doing? So good to see you this morning, and uh, I want to add my welcome and let you know how glad I am to see you, whether you're here in the room or online. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we're talking today about some lessons from Jesus, the great physician. We're in Mark chapter 2, and I just want to preface it by saying this. You know, hoping for a miraculous healing is one thing. Experiencing the miracle of healing is something altogether different. Hoping for healing is a very human, a very normal place for us to be. My guess is that of everyone hearing my voice right now, there are none who don't hope for a healing in your own life in some way or for someone else that you love. And while we hope for a miracle, the fact is that truly miraculous healings are exceedingly rare. That isn't to say that God doesn't intervene supernaturally in the lives of people, and he does all the time. He is continually involved personally and directly in our lives. But there's a difference between supernatural and the truly miraculous. And miracles don't happen indiscriminately. They achieve a specific purpose within the plan of God. And the passage that we're examining today is a perfect example of that. We're going to look at one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible today. It's an important enough story that it's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And it describes the day that a man who was paralyzed met the great physician and walked home. Think about that. Please just listen as I read the story, first of all, from the New Living Translation, and then uh, we'll follow through verse by verse in the ESV. But this is the New Living. Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd, so they dug through the clay roof above his head. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, What? This is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves, so he said to them, Why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your mat, and walk. I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go home, because you are healed. The man jumped up, took the mat, and pushed his way through the stunned onlookers. Then they all praised God. We've never seen anything like this before, they exclaimed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this inspired portion of your word. This day, Lord, that you healed this paralyzed man. And God, we ask you to open our hearts to see how it applies to our lives today. You'd be with us in a special way to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into our text, I want to remind you where we've been the last three weeks. Mark presents Jesus to us as the servant king. Mark's gospel is a very quick-moving one. It's full of action. And for the past couple of weeks, we've actually been enjoying sort of one healing after another, including a demon being cast out of a man in the synagogue there in Capernaum. All of this is in the context of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom from one village to the next around Galilee. And that sort of brings us to our text in Mark 2 today. And so if you haven't already, why don't you open up a Bible and I want you to pull out your sermon notes and or open them up on your app. And always a reminder, if you don't have the church app, you can always grab the sermon notes on the little tables right by the doors. That's always a good way to follow along. Mark opens the scene here with a description of the curious spectators. That's verses 1 and 2, the curious spectators. And he begins by establishing the setting for this miracle with three specific details. First is the location. After preaching the gospel in the towns and villages around Galilee, Mark says, Jesus and the disciples returned to Capernaum, which is this medium-sized fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see the ruins of this village even today when you go there. We visit Capernaum every time that we go to Israel. And as you get off the tour bus and walk that half block to the town, this is what greets you there at the gate. Capernaum, the town of Jesus, so named because that's where Jesus lived for the last two years of his earthly ministry. Here's an aerial view of Capernaum. So it's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Basically, all that's left there is these basalt or volcanic rock ruins of the small homes there, except... Right in the middle, middle is that white, kind of rectangular, square-looking building or ruins of, a, of the synagogue, 4th century synagogue, that was actually built on top of the synagogue from Jesus' day. And the reason I show you these pictures is because this is something that took place in very much in time-space history that you can go and you can see for yourself. And archaeologists have found all these amazing ruins that date back to the time of Christ. And then just above that synagogue that I pointed out is this sort of round building, which is a Catholic church right over the ruins of Peter's house. And Capernaum is a wonderful place to be because of all these ruins that we know date back to the time of Christ. So I hope that you come there with us sometime. It's, a, it's an amazing place. The second thing that we see here in the setting is that Mark says that he was at home. 
And the reference to Jesus' home is in keeping with his decision to make Capernaum his base of operations those last two years of life. And many scholars agree that while in Capernaum, it's very likely that Jesus stayed at Peter's home. However, if you were to watch uh, The Chosen, I highly recommend that little mini-series, The Chosen, and I watched episode six this week, which portrays this event that we're reading about today. He actually, they actually placed this miracle at Zebedee's home, or James and John's home. We don't know which for sure it was, but it was a home that was familiar to them. And I'm guessing the readers of this gospel knew exactly where they were talking about. Verse 2, Mark goes on and he says this, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So the third thing to note is this, the house was just full of people. In today's vernacular, Mark was basically saying it was packed. This was a standing room only crowd. And so we see here that people were lining up at this house because the news about Jesus had spread far and wide. Maybe he put it on his Facebook post. No, probably not, though. But by this time, he was so famous that he could hardly come back home to Capernaum and have any kind of normal life. He was so sought after by people. Now, as always, whenever people gather to hear about the Lord, there's different groups of people that assemble. People of all different types and persuasions come together in a situation like that. And one of the groups that was in this home on this day was the scribes and the Pharisees. In verse 6, Mark mentions the scribes. Uh, Luke puts it like this in his account over in Luke 5.17. Luke says, on one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So the first group I want you to be aware of in this home was the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll say a little bit more about them later, but just for right now, I want you to understand that these are the religious critics. They were teachers of the Old Testament law. And in first century Judaism, there were about 6,000 Pharisees at this time. And they saw themselves as the primary guardians and advocates for the traditions and rituals of the Jews. Within the sect of Pharisees is what were called the scribes. And they were the more educated, those with professional the theology training, the Old Testament scholars among them. And the scribes also had this emphasis on writing. They copied the sacred scriptures and they recorded different things that were important to the Jews. And so that's the first group that had assembled in this home, the religious critics, known as the scribes and Pharisees. By the way, did you notice in Luke that passage that some of them had come all the way from Jerusalem to check out the Lord? That's like a three-day journey. But they weren't there to support Jesus. Rather, they were there to find fault with him. A couple of Pharisees did come to faith. Most notably, we know about Nicodemus. But most of them saw Jesus as a threat. And so they were there to discredit him and hopefully to eliminate him. And that's why they were the ones who later we're going to see speak up and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. 
A second group of people in the crowd were the skeptics. They didn't really believe in Jesus, but they'd heard about him and they came to see him for themselves. They were there because they were interested, albeit skeptical. Another group most likely was the curious. And they were there because they'd heard the rumors as well. Jesus doing these miracles, Jesus handing out free food. Who wouldn't be up for that, all right? And they, they didn't really know what to think about Jesus, but his fame had gotten their attention. And so they came to hear for themselves, and to see him for themselves. And they wondered, I'm guessing, if he just might be the king of the Jews, as some were beginning to say. They were curious, and they'd come to see and hear him as well. So there were the religious critics and the skeptics and the curious, and the last group that was there were the desperate and broken. Desperate and broken. And the reality is we are a lot like this crowd even today in some ways. We've heard the name Jesus, and even though I don't see any scribes and Pharisees here in the audience today, uh, we're still a lot like this crowd that we're reading about. We all have our own particular views and response to who Jesus is. We've heard about him. We've formed opinions about him. Whether we believe in him or not, for example, and if we're ready to follow him ourselves. So Jesus has just returned to his hometown and the news about him has spread so much and his fame was so great that his home or this house was overrun by this throng of people. Well, the news also reached the ears of some men who were friends of a crippled man. And so the next thing that we are going to focus on is the crippled sinner in verses 3 and 4. Mark now moves from the various people gathered in this home to the paralyzed man carried by his four friends. And this man's condition was completely dependent on others. Because here's the deal. At that time in the Roman Empire, there was no such thing as disability, no social security. And the only thing that you had to rely on was the generosity of your family or your friends. And if you were paralyzed and you couldn't work, or if your family couldn't take care of you, you basically had to beg along the side of the road for others to help. So here's the quandary. Let's say that you have a friend and you're desperate for him to be able to walk again. And you've heard the news that there's this rabbi, this great rabbi, and he's healing people. What would you do in a situation like that? Well, here's what they did, verse 3. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So the four guys carrying the paralytic show up, and the house is jam-packed. And so they have a couple of options. Basically, they could wait for who knows how long for the crowd to disperse to get an audience with Jesus. Or 
they could be creative and take things into their own hands. And of course, that's what they did. The four men hatched an ingenious plan to bypass the crowd and to get their friend and audience with Jesus up close and personal. They climbed up the stairs to the roof of the house that he was in and began to open up a hole. And at this point, it's helpful for us to have a brief lesson on Middle East architecture. Because for those of us living in the Northwest, where rain is frequent and when roofs are pitched to shed the rain, it might not be quite obvious what's going on. You know, if you've been to Arizona or New Mexico and you've seen the construction methods used by Native Americans in that part of the country, you have a good idea what this looked like. So here's a photo that's sort of a one person's picture of Capernaum in the day of Christ. Homes in that part of the world at that time were typically built of rocks and they had flat roofs. And there was usually stairways that went up on the outside to get up on top of the roof and enjoy the cool evening breeze or the shade there, or even to sleep during hot summer nights because they typically had these patio roofs that were flat that kind of expanded their square footage. And here's how those homes were constructed. The typical Middle Eastern roof was made of timbers laid parallel to each other about two to three feet apart. So here's a picture of an inside of a structure built like that. And crosswise over the larger timbers were sticks and smaller branches laid close to each other, thus forming the basic roof. And then on those were laid branches and thistles and straw and reeds, anything just to build up the mass of the roof. And then that was overlaid with about a foot of dirt which was packed down hard so when it rained, the water would run off. And all told, that a roof of a home like that in that time was a couple of feet thick. So you can just imagine this scene. Jesus is teaching inside the house and all of a sudden, debris, you know, there's some noises they can hear up above and debris and dirt and dust begins to drop on the floor, either in front of Jesus, maybe on Jesus. Then larger chunks of clay and branches begin to fall to the floor and suddenly sunlight breaks through onto them inside the house. And they're like, what in the world is going on? What's happening? And then these men begin to lower their friend on a stretcher right in front of Jesus. Jesus, we need you at this moment to give our friend your attention. We know you're busy. We know you're teaching. But we don't care. We're desperate. Here's one of the reasons why I like this story so much. I want you to imagine you're one of those four guys lowering your friend through the roof. And you got this guy on a stretcher because you need to get him to Jesus. And you've had the nerve to rip up somebody's roof to do that. Try to put yourself in their frame of mind. Or imagine you're the paralytic himself. You've probably been paralyzed most of your life, if not all of it, unable to do so many things that you've just dreamed about doing. Unable to provide a living for yourself, maybe even unable to get married and have a family. So what is the one thing that you want? 
Well, you want to be able to walk, right? You just want to be healed so that you are able to have a normal life. And one of the things, of course, that I hear and you hear from people in this cultural moment we're living in is how much longer before things get back to normal, right? We all want that. And I'm sure this man and all his friends and family, that's exactly what they wanted for him. So imagine you're one of the four guys that lowered him before Jesus. He's your friend or he's your brother or he's a neighbor. And you're lowering him by ropes right in front of the Lord. And you know that's a risk that you're taking. You're wondering how it's all going to go down. What do you think will happen or what do you hope will happen? Or imagine that you're the guy on the stretcher and... You know it's a risk, what's going on, what is Jesus going to say, right? And then you hear these words, son, this could be the moment I've been waiting for, I've been dreaming about this moment for so long, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, 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 Jesus, time out. We didn't come all the way here and tear up this roof for this guy's sins to be forgiven, right? He wants to walk. He wants his life back. And so what is Jesus doing at this moment? Well, I think he's showing us something. The compassion of the Savior is what he's demonstrating and that's what we see in verse 5, the compassionate Savior. The one thing this man really wanted was to walk again. To just have a normal life, to be part of life like everybody else. He wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus understood that, of course. Jesus knew all of his thoughts. He knew his heart. And so he responded to him with compassion. And Jesus says, Son, your greatest need is not to walk. Your greatest need is to be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. As the man on the stretcher was lowered in front of Jesus, all eyes began to focus on him. And everybody in that room could tell that he needed physical healing. But only Jesus could see his need for forgiveness. Obviously, he wanted physical restoration, but Jesus alone knew that he longed for even more than that. So Jesus, in his love and compassion, addressed the more serious need first. And his words must have stunned everyone in the room. In fact, everyone on the roof as well. As shocking as this man's dramatic entrance through the roof had been, Jesus' statement was even more astonishing. Listen, beloved, sinful man, you and I have no greater need than the forgiveness of sin. It's the only way for us to be reconciled with God and to experience his blessing in our lives and eternal life in the next. That is the very reason that Jesus came to earth. 
not to heal people for a few short years, but to deliver us from sin so that we might enjoy eternal life. Eternal life. And that is the difference oftentimes between our agenda and God's agenda in the world. We place such a premium on our present physical bodies, which are someday going to die and be buried. But our eternal spirits, that part within us that lives forever, will continue long after our bodies are dead and gone. They're going to live forever, either in heaven with the Lord or in hell apart from God and his glory. So in light of eternity, physical healing pales in comparison to the spiritual healing of a sin-sick soul. There's no comparison. While you and I would look on and see a paralyzed guy and his friends in search of a miraculous healing, Jesus saw far more. He saw their faith. Look carefully with me at verse 5 again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That statement, seeing their faith, is crucial and indicates, I believe, more than just a belief in his ability to heal physically. They wanted healing for their friend, but they apparently wanted even more. And I would suggest to you it's very likely that these men had heard Jesus preach before and they had a genuine repentant faith in him. I can't say that for sure because Mark doesn't say that for sure, but I think that's what's going on here. The fact that Mark describes them as having faith seems to indicate they had repented and believed in Jesus as Messiah. But of course, that doesn't go over so well with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we see them next, the callous scribes, beginning at verse 6. And those were not just surprising words for them. They were outrageous words as far as they were concerned. They immediately understood the implications of what Jesus declared. Let's look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the scribes and the Pharisees are pretty upset. I mean, they're really hot at this point, And they should have been based on their false presupposition. You see, they reasoned correctly that only God can forgive sins. The problem is they didn't recognize that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so they were upset. Verse 6 says they were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And I picture them seated there someplace in this house, wearing those long, elegant black robes, arms crossed with unhappy expressions on their faces. And with my strange sense of humor, I also picture the dust from the roof now beginning to waft over on those big, fancy black robes, and they're brushing themselves and upset about that as well. They also failed to understand that Jesus is about three chess moves ahead of them. He anticipated 
their reaction, and he supernaturally sensed their silent objections. You see, Jesus intended to use this moment to reveal something about himself to the public for the very first time. John the Baptist had already identified Jesus as the Messiah, and the disciples followed him in belief. But Jesus had not broadly affirmed his own deity in public yet. But now he is ready to do so, to personally claim equality with God for everyone to hear. You see, Jesus had a point to make, and he did so by asking a profound question, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? So be careful if you go to answer that question. Don't answer too quickly, because that question is a double-edged question. And your answer depends on what you believe about the person asking it. I want to illustrate it for you this way, if I can. Try to follow along with me. So which is easier for me? Let's say I come up to uh, Cooper here and I say, Cooper, I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars, okay? Would you be okay with that? You, you get a choice, though. Which is easier for me? Is it to write a check and hand it to you for a million dollars, or would it be easier if I took out my wallet and just gave you $100,000 right now? Which would you choose? Which is easier? <laughs> He's going for the check. Smart guy. Okay. You know, the answer, though, depends on whether you believe I have the funds to cover the check or not, right? Okay. If the check is good, that's a wise decision. And uh, it'd be more difficult for me to follow through on that because it would cost me much more. But if I don't have the money in the bank, and I don't, Okay, to cover the check, it'd be more difficult for me to hand you the $100,000 because then I'd be really out the money. Believing I have a million dollars in the bank is more difficult because it requires more faith. So how you answer a question like that reveals what you believe about me. Look again at Jesus' question. He asked this, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or saying take up your bed and walk? That was a checkmate question. And it forced the scribes and the Pharisees to reveal what they believed about Jesus. And it gave Jesus the opportunity to prove who he is. Well, Jesus didn't give the audience long to decide. See what he said in verse 10. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The man got up, immediately picked up his bed and went out. Everyone saw it. There were eye, they were eyewitnesses of a fantastic miracle which couldn't be denied. And that is why it had such an impact as we're going to see in just a minute. But I want you to notice first why Jesus performed this miracle. 
He stated it clearly up front, verse 10, listen, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the why for the miracle, to prove his power to forgive sins, to demonstrate his deity. And Jesus proved his deity, I think, here in three ways, three important ways. First, he read their minds. He didn't wait for them to verbalize their thoughts. He knew exactly what they were thinking, and he answered what they were thinking before they said it. He knows exactly what they were thinking, and he knows exactly what we're thinking today as well. Oops, <laughs> think about that one, right? Second, he didn't debate their theological premise that only God can forgive sins. Rather, he affirmed that truth. And that was the whole point. His claim to forgive sins was nothing less than his claim to be God. And third, Jesus backed up that claim by healing the man. Obviously, it was easier just to claim your sins are forgiven since there's no empirical way to tell whether that was true or not. And so he healed the man, and by healing him, there was the immediate proof of his claim to be God. Listen, Jesus purposefully waited to heal this guy until after he declared that he had the authority to forgive his sins. And then by healing him, Jesus demonstrated his power over the effects of sins as well as his authority to forgive sins themselves. Which is why he prefaced the miracle with those words that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And by the way, that title, Son of Man, is important. Don't miss that. It's a clear messianic title. It comes right from Daniel chapter 7, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah who would set up his kingdom on earth. Remember what Jesus was going around and preaching in that day. Mark summarized it for us back in chapter 1, verse 15. The gospel that he was preaching was this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, the prophet Daniel had prophesied a coming king who would go by the title Son of Man. And Jesus said, good news, everybody. I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and surrender, submit to my authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees got it. They understood exactly what he was claiming. Plus, he didn't just claim it. And the miracle proved for all to see that he was who he claimed to be. And that explains the crowd's surprise. Verse 12, the crowd's surprise. Jesus dramatically put his claims to the test by telling the paralyzed man to get up. The proof came instantly. The moment Jesus spoke those words, the man was fully healed. There was no recuperation period, no need for physical therapy, no anything except perfect health and full strength. Listen to how Mark summarized it in verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. 
That Greek word amazed is interesting. It means to be astonished or confused or even to lose one's mind. In other words, this blew their minds. Okay, They were absolutely dumbfounded by what they saw. Luke puts it like this in his account in chapter 5. He says, they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. They were in awestruck reverence because they were exposed to the person and the power of God himself. And they responded by glorifying God. In terms of my illustration, Jesus gave the man the check for a million dollars and he also handed over the hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you see, the healing of that paralytic made it virtually impossible for the scribes and the Pharisees to deny his ability to forgive sin because both require greater authority than any mere human has. Several enduring truths emerge from this remarkable miracle that we're looking at today, and I've called them uh, next steps on your notes. I want to look at those with you. The first one is this. I will align my thinking with the way Jesus views things. You see, we need to align our thinking and our view of things with his view of things. And I say that because you may think that the pain and the inconvenience and the difficulty that you're suffering right now is the greatest need in your life, but there's a chance that it's not. Your greatest need in life always arises from the sinful condition of your heart. And that is true of everyone, which explains why Jesus gave priority to the man's heart before he addressed the hopeless condition of his body. We tend to invert those priorities, placing physical needs over spiritual needs oftentimes. But God continually calls us to reorient our thinking and see things the way he does. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we have worked so hard to keep our doors open as a church this past year. Next step number two, I will guard my heart against a critical spirit. The second insight comes as we think about the scribes and the Pharisees in the room that day, sitting there with their long faces in critical spirits. Listen, the earliest signs of a critical spirit are hidden and unspoken. One of the things that I have seen in my own life this last year that it's very easy to get a critical spirit because of all that is going on. I've wrestled with this over and over. The malignancy of a critical spirit begins deep down in the hidden recesses of the human heart where it sort of grows unnoticed. And unless it is treated like a cancer, aggressively eradicated, a critical spirit can become deadly. Proverbs urges us, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, guard your hearts. Examine your motives. Watch over them. Keep a close watch on your inner person. And be careful to maintain a positive spirit and a constructive influence on others. Here's next step number three. 
I will do my part to bring someone to Jesus. I will do my part to bring other people to the Lord. You know, while some people in that home in Capernaum were doing everything in their power to get closer to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees were only getting in the way of Jesus. They were against him. They were an impediment to people coming to faith in him. I've always been fascinated with a great Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was known in his day as the Prince of Preachers. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 19th century, which was the largest church in its day. Many experts agree that there was one particular sermon that Spurgeon preached that just caused his church to explode in growth. And that was a sermon he preached in 1887. Many called it the turning point in the life of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You know what that sermon was about? It was right out of this text that we just studied today. In fact, it was out of one phrase in verse 6. It was taken from the old King James translation where it talks about the scribes and Pharisees sitting by. And his sermon was called Sitting By. Spurgeon applied it to the congregants in his church who were satisfied to always just be sitting by, as he put it. He said, there's a group of you attending who are basically just taking up space. He had a lot of nerve. (laughs) Spurgeon boldly told them, if you're coming and you're just content to sit by, please don't ever come back again. Because you're only getting in the Lord's way. And that sermon had such a great impact on the people in his church that day that throughout the next week, hundreds of members of his church expressed to him that they were no longer going to be sitting by any longer. That they would be like the four men who brought their friend to Jesus. Well, when Spurgeon arrived at his church the next Sunday, he wasn't prepared for what he found. It was as if every member of his church, he said, had brought someone who needed Jesus. Hundreds were led to Christ that day, that Sunday, in his church. And it began a spiritual awakening in London that lasted for many years. In fact, it spilled over to America. Listen, beloved, that is what the church needs today. Our country so desperately needs a spiritual awakening today. I am worried for our country and for the direction that it is heading. But beloved, we have the answer. We know the one who can heal the heart. What do you think would happen in our church if a couple hundred of you made up your minds to be like these four men we've read about who brought their friend to Jesus? Because that's typically how people find the Lord. Someone in their life invites them, has influence on them to consider Jesus. What would happen if over the next few weeks, many of you would bring a friend or a relative or a work associate or someone from school to hear about Jesus or to watch online and hear about the Lord? 
You know, as we move toward Easter, we're preparing for one of our greatest seasons of outreach in all of the year. So three weeks from today is our Easter concert of prayer. It's going to kick off four days of prayer for our Easter outreach season. And I want to encourage you today to choose to be fully engaged in those four days of prayer. At least come for the concert of prayer three weeks from today. And then five weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Hard to believe it's coming that fast. We didn't even get to celebrate Easter personally and face-to-face last year. And we're already working hard to get everything ready for this outreach weekend and to make sure that things are just right for you to bring your friends or to invite them to watch with you online. And I want to encourage you to decide now that you're going to let God use you to bring someone to find Jesus this year. In just a minute, our worship team is going to sing a new song for us. It's called, There Was Jesus. It might not be a new song for you. You've probably heard it on the radio. I don't think we've sung it before. But before they sing, I want to take just a few moments for silent prayer. And I want to explain it before we get there. I want you to picture someone in your life right now who needs Jesus. In fact, I want you to picture your, them on a stretcher and you holding one of the handles of that stretcher. Bringing them to Jesus for healing. You can even imagine if you want three of your friends on the other corners of the stretcher. Friends who are praying with you or will be praying with you for them. If you don't know anyone who needs Jesus, may I suggest that you ask the Lord to bring someone to mind or even ask the Lord to bring someone into your life between now and Easter. And if you're here today or watching online because somebody invited you today, don't think of it as weird at all. Just be thankful that someone loved you enough to invite you to hear about the Jesus they love. So in a moment, we're going to take a few moments to pray about who God might want us to bring to hear about him. And while you're at it, I want to encourage you also to pray and give thanks for God's forgiveness and healing in your life at the same time. All right? So I'm going to sit down for a minute. We're going to pray for about 30 seconds, and then I want you to just listen to this song that our worship band is going to sing for us. Well, let's pray. Every time I tried to make it on my 
Every time I try to stand and start to All those lonely roads that I have traveled on There is Jesus When the life I built came crashing to the ground When the friends I had nowhere to be I couldn't see it then, but I can see it now. There was Jesus. In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing and the hurting, like a blessing buried in broken pieces. Every minute, every moment where I've been, man who needs amazing kind of grace for forgiveness at a price I couldn't pay I'm not perfect so I thank God every day there was Jesus in the way in the searching in the healing and the hurt On the mountains, in the valleys, there was Jesus. In the shadows, of the hours, there was Jesus. In the fire, in the flood, there was Jesus. Always with, always so much. Love that song and what a great job. Listen, friend, we all need Jesus. We all need to know his healing, to experience his power and his forgiveness, to experience his love and his compassion in, <clears throat> in our lives. And we need to realize that we're separated from him by our sins. 
but also to realize that he reaches out to us with the offer of the forgiveness of sins. And so I close with this final invitation. I realize most of you have probably accepted his offer to forgive you, but there might be someone here in this room or watching today who has yet to take that initial step of faith. And so I close with this invitation. I will let Jesus forgive my own sins. Friends, the word that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago to that paralyzed man are the very same words, <coughs> the very same words he wants to speak to you today. Child, your sins are forgiven. Would you let that sink in as you decide how you want to respond to his offer of forgiveness? The Bible says that we will experience his forgiveness and his healing in our lives, but we must first come humbly to him and to ask him for it and to receive it by faith. And we do that in prayer. And so I'd ask you, I'd invite you to just uh, pray with me now to bow in prayer. And if you're ready to receive him today, just pray silently in your heart of hearts along with me and say something like this to him. You can say, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. The very one who created me, who created everything, that he would come and die in my place and take my sins on the cross. Today I put my faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. I acknowledge I've sinned and I can't forgive myself or earn forgiveness, so I receive it as a gift today. And Lord, we thank you for that amazing gracious gift. And Lord, we thank you for the compassion of Jesus that we saw in this passage today. And as your people, Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with that same compassion for others, whatever their needs, Lord, whether it's forgiveness or healing or help in one way or another. God, help us not to be people who would be content to sit by, but that we would be moved with compassion to help others, to actively do our part. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.